The following message is from Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. It's easy for me to get up here and talk about this. It's, it's deeply personal. Um, but again, like I said, I, I don't really consider this my story. This is really God's story. And so um, I think the other thing that's very challenging about talking about this topic is there's, there's really so much that can be said. And you really just can't do justice to it in, in, a, in a span of 30 minutes. And honestly, depression is it's a very complex thing. There are no easy answers. And so I don't want to stand up here and act like I have all the answers. But today, I do want to accomplish a few things. Um, one is I want to reduce the stigma and the shame of depression in particular. Okay. Uh, second, two, I want to, I want to convey that if, if you are suffering right now or if you have suffered, that you are not alone. You are not alone in this battle. Um, three, I want, I want us to increase empathy and understanding within our church and within our family of faith on this topic. Um, and lastly, I, w- I want to give both those that are suffering and those with loved ones who are suffering a sense of hope that is rooted in Scripture. I think it's so important. And so today's not going to be a typical sermon where we're going to just take one passage and just try to, just try to exegete it from, from the pulpit here. But I'm going to just talk about some general things, maybe some things that I've learned uh, in my own journey. And, um, and also um, these things that I think the Bible teaches us about depression. Okay. Um, so, real briefly, I will share more at the end, but my personal encounter with depression, I can think of three very specific moments in my life where I think I was clinically depressed. Uh, the first was I was, when I was in seventh grade, about 12 years old, and um, that's me. Can you guess which one is me? And my cousin. I'm the guy on the left, so I was really super skinny. But um, back then, at least. And so um, that was me probably around fifth grade, a couple years before I kind of hit rock bottom. And when I was in seventh grade, I, in the span of about a year, I, I switched schools twice. So I was in three different schools in less than a year. And I was a late bloomer, and I was very introverted. And so I went from a Christian school in sixth grade to a public school, and that was a big change. And then another public school in the middle of seventh grade. And I did not adjust well. And it was a very difficult time in my life. My grades were not very good. I was a very average student at the time. Uh, I was getting B's and C's, which might as well be like D's and F's. <laughs> for, uh, um, and, my, you know, my father was a, a very successful doctor and elder, and so there was a lot of expectations that were put on me. I had three sisters, and so I was, I was the, only, um, you know, the only son. I kind of carried that burden. Um, and so I just felt a lot of pressure growing up. And, and I, I just remember very distinctly when I was in seventh grade, um, I, was, I was really feeling like I, I didn't, I didn't want to live. <laughs> You know, and um, I didn't think anyone would even notice if I wasn't around or care. And I remember uh, climbing up on my roof, and we just lived in a two-story home. and climbed up to the top uh, and just, you know, getting, getting to the very edge of the roof and kind of folding up my legs up against my chest and leaning over the edge of that roof, wanting to just fall and end my life. And I was 12 years old. And... Um, you know, I think I would have hurt myself really bad. I would have killed myself. I was only like 25 feet in the air. But that was a moment that I'll never forget. And, you know, by the grace of God, I didn't, I didn't hurt myself. But uh, a few months later, actually, uh, this guy named Kevin Scogan came into my life. And he was the youth pastor that got hired in our small 
Korean church in St. Louis. And um, he was like the perfect youth pastor. He's like six foot four, former college quarterback, I kid you not. Played a Pacific Lutheran, you know, and had the beautiful family, just looked like an all-American guy. And he really modeled for us, you know, what it means to live out the gospel. And he loved us well. And, and he was really whom God used to, to bring faith into my own life uh, around eighth or ninth grade, a couple years after that. The second time that I experienced uh, clinical depression, I think, was uh, shortly after I graduated from college. And at that time, um, I was pursuing a girl named Kimberly Shim. <laughs> That's her on the right. And um, I was 100% convinced that this girl was, was meant for me, that we were going to get married, and she was going to be the love of my life. And the only bad part, unfortunate part, is she, she did not share that same conviction at all. <laughs> And so it took me three years to convince her. But uh, early on, right before I was about to leave for, leave, graduate from college, I, I approached her and I said, hey, you know, God told me we're going to get married. <laughs> Something like that. And she's like, no, I don't think so. And, but we tried dating for a little bit for a few months. We tried praying about it. And after a few months, she's like, no, I don't think this is going to work out. And she said, um, I think it would be best if we, you didn't even talk to me anymore. I mean, she wasn't that cruel, but that's basically what she said. I think it would just be better if we stopped any communication. I was heartbroken because I was really convinced that she was, you know, going to be my wife. I was right, right? <laughs> but at the time, she didn't know that because she was less spiritual than me. <laughs> and so this is a picture of us, actually. Uh, we were dating, and as you can see, I'm, like, leaning as far as I can over close to her. She's, like, straight on the swing. So that kind of, I think, epitomizes our relationship from the get-go, me pursuing her. But I, I spiraled into depression because I, my heart was broken. And at that time, you know, I, I left the, this college campus where I felt like I was really growing spiritually. And then I was kind of all of a sudden went from spending 90% of my time with Christians to 90% of my time with non-Christians. And, you know, I was in public accounting at the time working. And, uh, my, you know, all my coworkers, all they wanted to do was go out and drink. And I, I just couldn't relate. And I just felt lost. And I, and I didn't know what to do. And... Um, that was uh, the second time. The last time uh, was about 10 years ago, actually exactly 10 years ago, in 2012. At that time, uh, shortly before that, my wife was diagnosed with stage 4 lymphoma. And there was a lot of touch-and-go moments in that season, and she almost died. And, um, and it actually wasn't during that season. Uh, that was an amazing season, actually, where God just did some amazing things and answered prayer. And she went into remission, and shortly after that, I spiraled into depression. And I'll get into more of that later, but um, that was actually the most difficult by far uh, of the three experiences. And so I, I, say, I share that with you because I want you to know that I'm, I'm speaking out of place of experience. You know, this is not just an academic thing for me. Um, this is very real. And um, before we go on, I want to just define this term a little bit more, uh, depression, because it's actually derived from a Latin verb. Deprimere, which means to press down, depression, to press down, to subjugate, the bringing down or sinking in spirits. And so what we have in, even embedded in the word itself is this idea of just being pressed down by something heavy, a heavy weight. And if you've ever experienced depression, it, it feels exactly like that, doesn't it? That something incredibly heavy is weighing you down, pressing down upon you to the point where you can't function. Sometimes you feel like you can't even breathe, and you're incapacitated. And even, even the simplest things like getting out of bed and brushing your teeth or taking a shower feels like Herculean tasks all of a sudden. 
And I want you to remember this picture in your head of depression being pressed down because, uh, you know, I think we're going to come back to that as, as we examine this word even more in Scripture. So um, when the pandemic hit over two years ago, it didn't take long before we realized that this was going to be like a massive disruption in the lives of everyone, right? We were all quarantining. We were all living in isolation. And we saw um, major increases in anxiety and and depression on a global scale, right? And sadly, this is especially prevalent amongst the younger generation. Many of you maybe have experienced that in your own homes if you have young children or especially adolescent, teenage children. And I want, to, I want to show you this chart. I know you probably can't read it, but um, this was released in June of 2020 from the CDC, about three months after the pandemic started, and I was just blown away by it. And it says that depressive disorders, depression, tripled since the start of COVID, basically. Okay? And you can't see it, but 52%, they have it broken out by age group categories. Between the ages of 18 and 24, 52% were experiencing depressive disorder. That's more than half, okay? Between the ages of 25 and 44, it was 33%, okay? And this shocked me. And in the other column there with the red circle, it, it says those who seriously considered suicide in the past uh, 30 days, they took, uh, that was part of the survey. Those who considered suicide, seriously considered suicide in the past 30 days, numbers were 26% for those ages 18 to 24. That's like one in four. Past 30 days. And 16% for 25 to 44-year-olds. And when I saw that, I was just blown away. I was like, what is going on? And, you know, one of the hardest things about depression is that you feel so alone when you're experiencing it. Like, no one can really understand you. And everyone is just trying to fix you. And um, it's so hard to communicate that what it is that you're actually feeling. It's so hard to articulate. Because the truth is we all experience, you know, seasons where we feel down, right? Uh, where, where we feel a melancholy and a sadness, right? But how do we distinguish that from clinical depression? How do I know if I'm depressed? Or maybe what is it like when someone I love is depressed? How do I understand that? So I want to show you a brief video. It's about four minutes long. And it's called, I Had a Black Dog. His name was Depression. And um, I don't think I've shown this before, but um, this, was a, this was a video that I saw when I was in my last uh, season of depression 10 years ago. And when I saw it, I was like, oh my goodness, this is exactly how I feel. And it's like, I felt like I found something like gold because I was like, Kim, this is exactly how I feel. And for the longest time, I couldn't explain to her like what it was I was feeling. And so I want to share this with you. And, um, and then we'll continue. I had a black dog. His name was Depression. Whenever the black dog made an appearance, I felt empty and life just seemed to slow down. He could surprise me with a visit for no reason or occasion. The black dog made me look and feel older than my years. When the rest of the world seemed to be enjoying life, I could only see it through the black dog. Activities that usually brought me pleasure suddenly ceased to. He liked to ruin my appetite. He chewed up my memory and my ability to concentrate. Doing anything or going anywhere with the black dog required superhuman strength. 
At social occasions, he'd sniff out what confidence I had and chase it away. My biggest fear was being found out. I worried that people would judge me. Because of the shame and stigma of the black dog, I was constantly worried that I'd be found out. So I invested vast amounts of energy into covering him up. Keeping up an emotional lie is exhausting. Black dog could make me think and say negative things. He could make me irritable and difficult to be around. He would take my love and bury my intimacy. He loved nothing more than to wake me up with highly repetitive and negative thinking. He also liked to remind me how exhausted I was going to be the next day. Having a black dog in your life isn't so much about feeling a bit down, sad or blue. At its worst, it's about being devoid of feeling altogether. As I got older, the black dog got bigger and he started hanging around all the time. I chased him off with whatever I thought might send him running. But more often than not, he'd come out on top. Going down became easier than getting up again. So I became rather good at self-medication, which never really helped. Eventually, I felt totally isolated from everything and everyone. The black dog had finally succeeded in hijacking my life. When you lose all joy in life, you can begin to question what the point of it is. Thankfully, this was the time that I sought professional help. This was my first step towards recovery and a major turning point in my life. I learned that it doesn't matter who you are, the black dog affects millions and millions of people. It is an equal opportunity mongrel. I also learned that there was no silver bullet or magic pill. Medication can help some and others might need a different approach altogether. I also learned that being emotionally genuine and authentic to those who are close to you can be an absolute game changer. Most importantly, I learned not to be afraid of the black dog and I taught him a few new tricks of my own. The more tired and stressed you are, the louder he barks. So it's important to learn how to quiet your mind. It's been clinically proven that regular exercise can be as effective for treating mild to moderate depression as antidepressants. So go for a walk or a run and leave the muck behind. Keep a mood journal. Getting your thoughts on paper can be cathartic and often insightful. Also keep track of the things that you have to be grateful for. The most important thing to remember is that no matter how bad it gets, if you take the right steps, talk to the right people, black dog days can and will pass. I wouldn't say that I'm grateful for the black dog, but he's been an incredible teacher. He forced me to reevaluate and simplify my life. I learned that rather than running away from my problems, it's better to embrace them. The black dog may always be part of my life, but he'll never be the beast that he was. We have an understanding. I've learned through knowledge, patience, discipline and humour, the worst black dog can be made to heal. If you're in difficulty, never be afraid to ask for help. There is absolutely no shame in doing so. The only shame is missing out on life. So, um, yeah, this was a video that was produced by the World Health Organization. It's not a Christian video. But much of what it, it shared resonated with me, especially some of the solutions shared, because I think, I believe it actually draws from the wisdom of God's word. And that shouldn't surprise us because the one who knows us and who loves us and who made us has a lot to say about something that afflicts us, that afflicts his beloved children. 
And so, you know, this, this slide, I think, says, it pictures it well. You know, it's, this is how you feel. You feel like flattened out, depressed, weighed down, like you can't function. Like this massive black dog. And so I, I want to unpack a bit. What does the Bible teach us about depression? And this is not meant to be comprehensive or hold all the answers. And yet, just some of my insights personally as I've walked through my own journey with this. Um, the first thing I think I want to say is that the Bible, and that is God, does not ignore, does not shame, does not minimize, does not gloss over depression, but presents it as an important part of spiritual formation. Okay. Um, when you read the Bible, you'll find that depression is actually a very common experience among all those who have been greatly used by God. And I think of Moses sitting by the well in Midian after killing a man and fleeing Egypt, his life in utter shambles. I think of the prophet Elijah lying under a tree in the wilderness waiting to die. I think of Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth, weeping over the loss of her husband and her two sons and exhorting her daughters to just go, her daughter-in-laws, to just go and leave her, to find a new life so they can just die, so that she can just die, a forsaken old woman. I think of King David, who's despondent because, of his best, because his best friend's father, King Saul, seeking to destroy him. I think of David crushed by the utter failure of his own sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. I think of David grieving over a dead son who was trying to kill him to overtake his throne. And I think of Apostle Peter hearing the rooster crow three times and weeping in utter disappointment with himself. And there are so many examples, not just in the Bible, but just great men and women of God throughout the history of time. And here's what I want to say is we can find hope in the fact that God has not forgotten or forsaken those who find themselves in this place. In fact, it is often from this very place that God does his greatest work in and through those he loves. You know, each of these men and women were greatly used by God after they experienced their lowest of lows, not before. The next thing I want to say is that we are not just physical beings, but we're spiritual, emotional, and mental beings. And God desires to bring wholeness to every part of us. Okay? We tend to get fixated just very much on the physical. Oh, God, heal me of this. Heal me of this sickness. Heal me of this disease. But we're not just physical beings. We are complex creatures with unique spiritual, emotional, and mental capacities that no other creature on earth enjoys, that we are fearfully and we are wonderfully made. And all of this is intertwined into who we are and interconnected, playing a role in how we feel and even how we experience God. And I believe God knows this, and he wants to engage with us at every level with his love, his perfect love. And by perfect, I don't mean just without fault or without flaws, you know, to the Jewish mind and the Jewish people, the word perfect meant complete. And when we say that God's love is perfect, we're saying it's complete. Because it makes us whole. It makes us complete. Every part of us. And really, God is the only one to whom we can say, like, you complete me. And when Jesus tells us what is the greatest command, we get a picture of this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And God calls us to love him with the totality of who we are, 
Because that is the same kind of love by which God loves us. Heart, mind, soul, and strength. Which perhaps can be said is our emotional, our mental, our spiritual, and our physical being. God wants, us to, God wants to make us whole in our brokenness. And that means bringing healing to every dimension, every part of who we are. And I think the largest book in the Bible is one of the most powerful proofs of this fact. The Psalms. God not only gives us the narrative of David's life in First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles, but in the Psalms, God gives us the heart and the mind and the soul of David expressed in the most raw and unfiltered terms. And God says, this is how I want you to approach me. This is a man after my own heart. Not with pretense, not with pretending, but with honesty and with sincerity, even when life sucks, even when you don't understand me, even when you hate me. Come. And you know, David experienced life's highest highs and lowest lows. He was king. And he was a nobody. Even his own family was like, oh yeah, we got one more brother. He's tending the sheep. You want to see him? He experienced all. The the greatest joys, the greatest sorrows, the greatest victories, and the greatest failures in life. And I think in some ways God, God had him walk through that as a model for us. And the Psalms are a gift. It's a gift to us. I can't think of any other book that ministers to more people that are struggling with mental health, depression, anxiety than the book of Psalms. I know it was true for me. I didn't didn't have any other book I could turn to. You know, last week, Pastor Steve spoke briefly on the story of Elijah and his bout with depression, and I was struck by how God cares for him in this state. Uh, Let me just read really quickly again. Elijah, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, it says, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left a servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and this is when Jezebel and Ahab are basically telling him, look, you're dead tomorrow. We're coming after you. Your, Your life is over. And this is after he experienced the great victory in Mount Carmel against all these false prophets. And it says, he came to a broom bush, and he sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I haven't had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush, and he fell asleep. And all at once, an angel touched him, and he said, get up and eat. And he looked around, and, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and then he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and, and touched him and said, get up and eat. The journey's too much for you. So he got up, he ate, and he drank, and he was strengthened by that food, and he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And I've been in that place where I've fallen asleep and I was just hoping I don't wake up. But when you look at this text, you know, it says the angel of the Lord is often thought of, this angel of the Lord, by Bible scholars as actually a pre-incarnate Christ. Meaning Jesus, before he becomes fully human. And you see this angel of the Lord appear many times in the Old Testament. 
And I think this is actually fascinating when you think about it because this is possibly Jesus himself appearing before Elijah, and I'm struck by just how subtle and how simple and how sincere um, this angel of the Lord cares for Elijah. And he doesn't say much, does he? He just sits with him in his grief, and he ministers to him with a gentle touch, and he makes a, a meal for him, and he encourages him, and he cares for him, his physical needs, to give him strength. And I think that is the that heart of our Lord. And I think that's a model for all of us, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. And I think the Jewish people, they get that. They, I think they take a whole week off when, when they're mourning and grieving the loss of a loved one. It's called a shiva. And they don't say anything. You just sit in silence and you grieve with that person. And that's, I think, the best way that you can minister to someone who's really struggling in mental health and depression is not trying to fix them or solve them change them, but sit with them. Let them feel understood, loved upon, even in that state. The second thing I want to share is um, we're not meant to suffer in silence, but to find comfort in community, especially in our family of faith. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 he says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, if anyone tells you, like, oh, yeah, the Bible says God will never give you more than you can handle, then just point to this verse and tell them, oh, no. God will give you more than you can handle at times. I mean, this is Paul speaking in such terms. He can handle it. He felt like he was going to die. And he says, but that was there to make us realize, not on, not to make us not rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. You know, Paul is at the end of himself, and he's remembering a time in Asia where he was like, I thought it was over. This is the lowest I've ever been. I was despairing of life itself. But he makes it clear he wants others to know that he was afflicted. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers. And he explains how the comfort that he found by God from those who had been afflicted, who can in turn now share that experience and be a comfort and a blessing to others. And our darkest moments are to be shared with our community of faith so that we can both give and receive help when we need it. So we can lift one another's burdens in support, in prayer, in caring for one another. And that's what we do when we gather here, is when we give testimonies like this, is we're sharing stories of hope, just like Paul did. He says, he delivered us, past tense. He will deliver us, future tense. He will deliver us again. And he leans into the faithfulness of God because he remembers God's faithfulness to him. And we're going to have to do that for one another. And sometimes we're not going to have that faith. We're not even going to have those stories to lean on. We're going to have to lean on the story of another person, maybe even the faith of another person at times. But sometimes that's good enough. 
in our darkest moments, we walk together, we share together, we live together. You know, I, I have this, this letter um, that someone wrote me five years ago in March of um, 2017, and it was someone that had, doesn't go to our church, but was visiting our church, and they wrote this, Dearest Pastor Peter, this letter is long overdue. I was visiting a few weeks ago, and I was very humbled and encouraged to be a witness to your testimony. And I, I shared about my struggle with depression five years ago. I was very humbled and encouraged to be a witness to your testimony. As someone who has struggled with depression for most of my life, it was empowering to hear you speak courageously about a taboo topic, especially from the perspective of an, of an Asian male and someone in leadership. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for sharing such a powerful and humbling story. And I, you know, I've kept this letter, and I keep it at my desk because, you know, I, it's not my story, like I said. It's God's story. And this is just a, a reminder that what a ministry can be when we share that story with others, when we carry that burden together, even people that we don't know. And every time I talk about this, I get several people who come up to me and be like, hey, can we talk? Because they've experienced, they're in the middle of, of, of feeling something like experiencing depression, or they have a loved one who's, who's struggling and fighting it right now. And um, we're not alone. And we're never meant to be alone. And I believe the, the love of Christ is most powerfully expressed and experienced through the body of Christ. That was God's intention and design. But the only way that we can experience it in this way is if we have the courage, if we have the humility to share that burden with others. And that is what God calls us to. Um, next, God sees our sorrow God sees our pain, and he can use it for his glory and for our good if we turn to him in faith, okay? Um, a couple weeks ago, as I was preparing, just thinking about this message, um, one of my friends, Christian friends, who's a therapist and a counselor who has actually experienced a lot of suffering in his own life, he shared this article from medium.com. It's not a, it's just a secular site, um, but I was reading through it, um, and it just struck me. And the title was called Jim Carrey is Right. Depression can wake us up. Science now confirms. Um, and I just want to read it. I'm not going to show it up there. So if you could just listen along. Um, so it's a bit of a longer text from this article. And it says this. After a decade of research, scientists are stunned to find that depression opens the door to spiritual awakening. In the last decade or so, scientists have linked depression and spirituality through MRI scans and EEG tests. In 2009, researchers started to image the brain in search of the neurological structure of depression. And they found that subjects whose parents and grandparents experienced depression have a significantly thinner right cortex than those without depression in their family history. This cortical thinning appears even when the third generation has yet to become ill. And so if you could show that slide, it's the, the one on your right is the, is the right hemisphere of the brain, and that purple kind of indicates this contrast, these two sets of people, and this thinning in that right side of the brain, and this cortical thinning. And it says that subsequent neural imaging shows that strong personal spirituality thickens the same region of the brain, even among subjects whose family history puts them at a high risk for depression. 
These brain scans prove that spirituality serves as a protective buffer against the condition. But this change is not merely possible among the high risk. The effect is actually greatest among them, suggesting that these brains are more sensitive to the impact of spirituality. A sensitivity to depression is another way of saying a sensitivity to spirituality. This finding has been reinforced by another set of studies. An EEG test measures the electrical activity of the brain, and subjects with a strong personal spirituality emanate high-amplitude alpha brain waves. Alpha waves are associated with wakeful rest, being awake and yet still feeling very restful. When one is both calm and alert, and there's some evidence that enhancing them triggers a surge in creativity, Meditating monks emit these waves, and the most common antidepressants are designed to jumpstart them. The EEG reading was even more pronounced in people with strong spirituality and recovery from major depression. Through multiple scientific methods, researchers have come to this compelling conclusion. Spirituality and depression work together to wake us up. Spirituality and depression work together to wake us up. And as Miller says, depression is a sensitivity or a perceptual capacity, a knock at the door for the opportunity of an awakened brain. Now, I know there's a lot lot of scientific jargon there. I think this is very profound. I share this with you because I want you to see that science actually seems to be catching up with what the Bible has already told us. That God can redeem even our most painful and difficult and darkest seasons for a greater and a more eternal purpose. God takes no joy in our sadness. In fact, one of the hallmarks of the new heaven and the new earth is that we are promised that there will be no more tears, no more sadness in the perfect presence of God. And this is God's desire for us. And yet in his mysterious ways, God can redeem even our greatest pain and suffering and sadness to awaken us to him and to draw us to himself. And this is why Paul can speak about the follower of Christ as a paradox, even in the midst of great hardship and distress and even depression. A few chapters later in 2 Corinthians, Paul in chapter 4 says this, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. I love that language. That's the language of depression. We are hard-pressed on every side. But here's the paradox. But we're not crushed. And we're not in despair. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of his life, which is being revealed in our body. Because we trust him. And we put our faith in him. And when we do so, even in the midst of those places, we experience his resurrection power. You know, if you were with us two weeks ago at our Easter service, what an awesome time 
just some amazing testimony. Every single testimony was just so powerful and encouraging. And, um, you know, I think about every one of their stories, just Madeline's story, Gracie's story, Sendrily's story, everyone, Julia's story, just Jinso's story, just every one of them (laughs) came from this place where, you know, there was real brokenness, real despair even, real loss. And how God did use that suffering and use that pain to draw each of them to himself. And I think that's what we're talking about here. That's what Paul's talking about here. Is identifying with Christ. Fellowshipping in his sufferings. Turning to him in faith. And experiencing the power of his resurrection. You know, God uses our suffering not only to draw us to himself, but also as a ministry to others. Pastor Scott Sauls, ministers out in Nashville, said this, Suffering has a way of equipping us to be the best expressions of God's compassion and grace. It has a way of equipping us to love and lead in ways that are helpful and not harmful. A healer who has not been wounded, who has not been wounded is extremely limited in her or his ability to heal. I think that's so true. There's something so redemptive about that is even in our darkest moments that God is at work and using us and enlarging our heart with the capacity to love and to care for others. You know, I, I struggled with entering into ministry, you know, for, for a long time I, I, because I felt like I just don't have a heart that loves people. And ministry is a lot of people stuff, you know. You got to deal with people a lot. And yet I think through my suffering, through a lot of these just... God has, has done that. He's, he's enlarged my heart. And it's not where it needs to be, but it's much further along than it used to be. Um, let me close with this. There, there are a few things more painful than depression, but if we can find fellowship with Christ in our suffering, we will in time experience the power of his resurrection. And, you know, I think that is what we witnessed again on Easter Sunday. Um, you know, I showed the video about this black dog, but... Um, uh, back in last past summer, we got a brown dog, puppy, and um, her name is Poby. And um, this dog is like totally in love with my wife Kim. Like I don't know why, but she's totally attached to Kim. Basically, no one else in the family exists. And so, if I come home, she just like looks up and she's like, "Oh, it's you," and then she goes back to bed. If Kim goes home, comes home, she goes crazy. And anytime Kim, like, Kim's getting ready to go, she's in the bathroom getting ready or whatever, you know, blow-drying her hair, the puppy starts to get really anxious because she knows, oh, Kim's about to leave. And I could be there, and, you know, Kim, and oftentimes, you know, Kim will go, you know, early somewhere, and I'll be at home, and she's like, can you watch the dog? Because the puppy just runs downstairs and just barks like crazy, goes crazy when Kim leaves. It doesn't matter if everyone else is in the house. And so, you know, um, last week... I was holding the dog because the kids were still sleeping and Kim had to go somewhere early. And I just kind of held her on my chest and, and I just like trapped her so she couldn't move. Like I was just like, you know, holding her like this and I was laying down with her and I was just trying to speak, you know, soft and kind words to her and calm her down. And, and she just stayed there. I was holding her for like five minutes until Kim finally left. And then a few minutes after that, I just released her and she was fine. Like, she got through. It was like the first time she didn't go crazy. 
And, you know, this verse came to my mind when, when I was holding her, and, and it comes from Psalm 139, verse 5. And it says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And, and I think that is the Lord, you know. We feel so anxious. We feel so depressed. We lose a loved one. And sometimes we feel like the weight of the world is upon us and we can't move. We can't do anything. And yet what I want to tell you is even in the weight of that, sometimes it is the Lord. And he's pressing down and he's holding you and he's hemming you in. Because he loves you. And sometimes you will find yourself in a place in life where you feel utterly stuck like that. A place where there is no way forward, no way out, and your most natural inclination will be to despair. But don't lose heart. This is part of God's design. When we are stilled in his presence and when we submit to his power, his gentle hand will press down upon us. He is doing a mighty work. He has not forgotten you. He has not forsaken you. He has you right where he wants you. And he is doing a work in you that might, you might not be able to see right now. But he loves you and he's at work. Let me just close with just a little bit of my story. Like I said, um, 10 years ago, I spiraled into a really, really bad episode of, of clinical depression. And, uh, you know, Kim was, like I said, battling cancer. She went into remission. I took eight months off of work, just unpaid leave, because uh, just to help care for her and the kids. <clears throat> and I tried to go back to work after eight months off. And um, now I, I have some empathy from women who, you know, take maternity leave for three months or whatever and try to go back to work. It's really hard. And I just remember really struggling. Like I would go to my office and I couldn't get work done. I couldn't focus. I had this little office in downtown, and it was big enough for me to just, I just would literally close my door and just pace back and forth. I was just overwhelmed with anxiety. And then it took me to some really dark places to the point where I literally could not get up out of bed and go to work. And I didn't know this at the time, but, um, you know, I actually had disability insurance, so I went on disability for months. And I was this close to losing my job. And, um, you know, I, like I said, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't function. And, and Kim, to this day, when, we talk, when she talks to people about her cancer, she'll often bring up my depression, and she'll be like, yeah, that was way harder than my cancer. And I'm like, can you not share that every time we meet people? It's like, I mean, chemotherapy is pretty hard, you know? <laughs> and so it was really hard for her. And um, I, I can't tell you, like, there's one thing that, that, that just overnight, it, was, it wasn't like anything really changed overnight, but I had so many people praying for me. And um, so many really good friends, like, just doing their best to just know that, you know, they cared. And I had one friend, you know, from my, one of my best friends from Toronto, he's a pastor, an older brother to me, and he came twice, left his church, came twice, flew down here just to be with me. Um, one of my other friends who, you know, was an Army veteran and 
served in Iraq, he's seen a lot of people with mental depression and PTSD, and he, he came, and he's like, I'm going to take you to Florida. This was during the spring, and he was like, I'm going to take you to Cardinal Spring Training. And if you guys know me, I love the Cardinals. That didn't even work. Like, I'm sitting in Florida watching the Cardinals play, and I'm like, this is no fun. I'm getting sunburned, you know? <laughs> but that was where I was at. And... Um, I remember my brother-in-law, um, you know, we were walking around, and he was talking to me, and he's like, look, Peter, you know, I, I know God is at work, and he's going to use this season to do some great things through you. And for whatever reason, that, that just stuck in with me, because I, I didn't believe it. I thought he was kind of speaking foolish, but um, it stuck with me, because I think there was just enough faith. <clears throat> and I remember in that season... Um, I thought I was home alone once, and um, I, I thought Kim had taken the kids out. And I went into my walk-in closet in my bedroom, and it was pitch black, and I saw that when I opened the door, that like, Kim was on the floor, and she was weeping. And then, you know, that's a moment I'll never forget, because I knew exactly why she was weeping. She, she felt so helpless. Like, she, she didn't know what to do anymore. I didn't know what to do. And I remember seeing her in that state, and I felt horrible. And yet I felt like, I, I don't know how to help myself. And look what it's doing to my family. And like I said, you know, over the course of a few months, by the grace of God, I was able to put one foot in front of the other, get to work, and I, it was hard. Those first couple months were really hard. And during that season, um, I remember Kim saying, like, if you can't go back to work, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Like, what, what can you see yourself doing? And I told her, you know, if I could, my dream would be to just serve at a church and be an executive pastor somewhere. And um, that way I can kind of use my corporate experience and, and also serve the kingdom, you know, in ways that I feel like would be more fulfilling for me. And at that time, like, I was in no state to be in ministry at all. And so I knew that wasn't an open door for me. And yet, um, we both remember that moment. And so, you know, like I said, I went back to work, and slowly that fog just lifted. And it wasn't anything magical. It was just God doing a slow work. And within the span of about four months, like, I actually felt like I loved going to work again, loved my old job. And I, in my mind, I was like, this is, I'm going to retire here. And um, two years after that, um, you know, my company got sold. I mean, the whole financial crisis, and they were just basically selling off the entire company, and we were all going to lose our jobs. And at the time, I was just going to go find another commercial real estate job. And yet, at that time, Kim was interviewing to be the Sunday school director. This was seven, eight years ago. Um, and at that time, she became aware that, you know, Pastor Steve had said, you know, we are going to be looking for an executive pastor soon. And she said, she came home that day, and she was like, you know, the church is looking for an executive pastor. You think maybe that's where God may be leading you. And that was the time when I knew I was going to lose my job, but I, I, you know, I still had the span of a few months to figure things out. And I think she regrets telling me that <laughs> in some ways, but, you know, that was it. That was the answer to our call, and that was uh, six, seven years ago. And I look back at that time, and, and, I, and I see how God used, you know, some really difficult season to mold me and to shape me, to help me be a better pastor. And I'm so grateful. 
And, and, I, and I know the same can be true of you, whether this is a place where you find yourself or a loved one, you, fi- you find a loved one in this place, that God is work. There is hope. I want to invite the worship team to come up this time. And um, we're going to enter into a time of communion. And if you have uh, these prepackaged elements, if you could pull it out. You know, I think one of the most powerful moments in Scripture in the Gospels is when we look at the life of Jesus is in his last moments in this place called Gethsemane where Jesus, it says, went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And Jesus knows what's coming. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, his closest friends, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled, he says. And then he says to to his closest friends, "My, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he says, stay here and keep watch with me. Just be with me. Be with me, And going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he's prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And you know, that's, I don't know if you know this, but Gethsemane actually means like the pressing. It's, it's a place where grapes were crushed and wine was made. And that's that's the picture that we're given in Jesus' last days. This is a place where someone is crushed, something is crushed, blood is poured out. And that is what, that's what this table represents. blood of Christ poured out for you. His body broken for you. Because God knows we're broken. God knows this world is broken. God knows there's a lot to grieve about. There's a lot to be sad about. It's okay. That's natural. He grieves too. And he did something about it. He gave himself so we could find a way to come back to him, be made whole in his perfect love. So if we bow our heads, if we could just take these elements, reflect upon this body which is broken for you, this blood which was poured out for you, and receive it in faith. And know that God is at work. Even in your darkest moments, he's about to do something great, just as he did with his son.